0: welcome to our uh, adult sunday school on christology it's just a fancy word to say the study of the person and work of christ uh who's the second person of the one true god uh right the one true god exists in three persons father son holy spirit and we have been looking at the person of the son uh, god the son seeing we're saying if you start with jesus because jesus is the word Then you will see what God is really like, because he's the word. So he's everything that God wants to say to us. He's exactly what God is like. There's no God in heaven, unlike Jesus, because he's the invisible God made manifest to us. And when you look at Jesus, you see that God is a, you see God's son. So when you look at, when you look at Jesus, you see that God is a father who loves the son by the spirit. That's who God is. That's how he's revealed himself to us. And everything flows out of that. And then, basically, for the past two weeks, and we're going to finish it today. We've been focusing on what C.S. Lewis calls the miracle of miracles, um, which is the incarnation—that two thousand years ago, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on human flesh and is born of the woman Mary. Um, so, I want to just say I added transitions this time to the slides, which is pretty awesome. Um, these are the main resources I'm pulling from. I'm not going to quote them every time, um, but. Uh, Oh, uh, Paul Harvey, uh, on his radio show a long time ago, he told this story uh, on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, I can't remember, about a man who, um, he, did not believe in, he did not believe in Christmas. He felt the idea that God would become a man was ludicrous. Uh, I can't remember if he was a stated atheist or not. So he sent his wife to the Christmas Eve service and he stayed at home. And the story goes that as he was at home on his couch, it was really cold outside snowing freezing and uh this bird starts bumping up against the window you know while his fire is is going in the den and for some reason this kind of moment of compassion comes out on him he's like this bird is literally it's going to freeze to death but he remembers he has a barn outside and he's like if I can get these birds to go into my barn they will live but he started realizing every time he went outside to try to like coax the birds into the barn they would fly off because they were scared of him right because he was too big and he said all of a sudden he realized the only way that he could get the birds to trust him and to follow him and to not be scared of him is if he actually became a bird and could speak their language and then they would follow him into the barn. That is the message of the incarnation, that God himself becomes like us to get through to us so that we don't fear him in the wrong way anymore. That, Tim Keller puts it this way. The God of this universe became a wiggling baby in order to get close to you. Think about that. Nobody is scared of a baby. Now, you might be scared of what to do with a baby, but nobody's scared of a baby. And G- God became a baby in Jesus so that he could, so that he could communicate with you, so that he could know what it's like to be you, so you wouldn't have to fear him anymore. And so that the last, you know, whatever, two weeks, we, have, we focused on the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He does that so we can be near him and not be destroyed. And we're all admitting our minds are kind of blown as we hold the tension together that he is truly God and truly man in one person. So that, you know, what Bob says is he who, he who remains what he was, God, becomes what he is not, human. And so on the one hand, everything that Jesus does is exactly What God does, says, and thinks because he is God in the flesh. And on the other hand, he is always functioning as the perfect human, real human nature, offering his life in our place, limited in one place. He is a righteous human living in perfect submission to the Father on our behalf. He's actually, Jesus is living by faith. We talked about that last week in the promises of God. He's the perfect man. So when we look at Jesus, he's he's of course more God than us, but he is not less human than us. So the Word takes on flesh, and those two natures are joined together in one person, inseparably in hypostatic union, without conversion, composition, confusion, so that you know. This is before we move, so that G, in the person of Jesus, he is omniscient; his divinity is, and at the same time, he is limited in his knowledge. As a two-year-old, his, his brain really is functioning at two-year-old capacity so that it still has to grow in wisdom. That's how human he is. Um, so, uh, I said, actually, I'm going to run through the flip and we'll see if there, we have any more questions on the incarnation. Because what I want to do, last week we talked about what the incarnation reveals about God. And I hope to, you know, show us what the incarnation reveals about ourselves. I, I hope we leave this morning and the incarnation is not just some... Cool theological concept to talk about. It might not be cool to talk about for you. We, this is a weird world that pastors live in. But I hope that you realize it actually will change your ordinary Monday as you receive it and live in it. Um, so um, let me bring up uh, Philippians two. Um, and let me uh, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, by your Spirit, open our eyes so that we can understand. Uh, it is a great mystery, uh, not a mystery that is. Um, irrational, but a mystery that uh, it's rational to believe that there are some things beyond our finite mind that we can hold together that is true. Uh, But would you grow us in our understanding? Would you grow us in our love and faith of Jesus Christ uh, so that we can be changed? In your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, here is Philippians 2. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, very interestingly, in Christ Jesus, "'Who, though he was in the form of God, "'did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, "'but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, "'being born in the likeness of men, "'being found in human form, "'he humbled himself by becoming obedient "'to the point of death, (laughs) excuse me, "'even death on a cross. "'Therefore God has highly exalted him "'and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, "'so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow "'in heaven and on earth and under the earth, "'and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.'" to the glory of God the Father. Okay, this is a uh, diagram I came up with, so that's why it's so uh, simple and very boring. But I, I want you to see how the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he wants you to grasp the humiliation of Christ. That's the theological term, this humiliation is exaltation. I want you to see how low he goes in the incarnation. Right, first it says Jesus was in the form of God, so, in other words, before the incarnation, this is the Greek word morphe, it simply means that Christ possessed the image of God. He is God himself. Everything that makes God God is in Jesus, okay? And then it says this He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, watch, it's going to keep going down. That doesn't mean he let his divinity go. That's impossible. The next verse is going to define what it means that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he emptied himself. What it means is that Jesus allows his divinity to be veiled in flesh. We sing that in Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead we see. And so what it's saying is his equality with God was not something that he held on to in the sense of to exploit others, right? He, He veiled it in human flesh so that he came down. And then it says he emptied himself. That doesn't mean he emptied himself of being God, Paul isn't trying to define the incarnation in, in this sense. He's showing you the pattern of Jesus' life. That Jesus had every right to stay in a place of power and comfort, to stay immune to pain, right, equality with God, but he emptied himself. He made himself low, but made himself nothing by taking on a human body so as God himself made himself vulnerable to pain, rejection, and death. He didn't have to do that in a real sense, and he did. And he takes on a form of a servant. So it's not just that he has a human body. The master of this universe takes on the status of a slave, right? He's born as a Jew in a nation occupied by Rome under their rule. He was born in poverty to Mary and Joseph. It also seems by, by what we can tell from Scripture that Joseph dies at an early age because you get no mention of Joseph in Jesus' adulthood, Which means Jesus is bearing the weight of family poverty at an—he's the oldest son, right? At an early age, he's a slave. He gives up his rights so much so that before the night before he dies, he washes his disciples' feet, which is something only slaves would do, right? And then, of course, what happens? He's executed publicly, crucified. If you you use today's language, he's lynched on a tree. Because he has no rights. The one who created the tree upon which he's crucified. And then it says he's born in the likeness of man, men, being bound in human form. Again, this is trying to emphasize that the likeness of man, in every way the Son of God is fully human but without sin. So he adds to himself a human likeness. But the emphasis here is, that, is how ordinarily human in, in many ways he was. That if you were to walk the streets of Nazareth, and Jesus was on the other side, you wouldn't have noticed him. He wouldn't have turned any heads. There was no, there's no glowing face. He wasn't particularly handsome. Isaiah 53 gives us the only physical description of Jesus that we have. And you know what it says? It says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And this is God, the radiance of glory. The one that is so beautiful, the angels hide their faces saying, holy, holy, holy. And yet, if you had been in first century uh, Israel and Jesus walked across the street, you wouldn't have noticed him. That's how low he becomes. The, some of the earliest depictions of Jesus from the church fathers, I'm not saying this is true. but This is how they took the fact that he had no beauty. They pictured him as a, as a hunchback, some of them. That, that That's how low he made himself. And it's the Lord of the universe. So really, when you think about Jesus this is okay. You really got to think of like a Jewish peasant with dirt on his feet, weathered skin, probably teeth that are rotting out yellow because there is no fluoride, saying, I am God himself, right? That's that's how low he's going. And then it says he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Paul is forcing us to, to see and experience the humiliation of Christ, that it's not just a dot, it's a line. He becomes a baby, but not a royal baby. He's born in poverty in a feeding trough to an unwed mother. Then he lives not as a king, but as a servant. As he grows up, he does not have glamorous beauty. He's just an ordinary carpenter living in backcountry, what we would say redneck Nazareth. And he keeps going lower. When his public ministry starts, he's assaulted with temptation by Satan. He goes without food for 40 days. And if you remember this, when he's being tempted in the wilderness again when we think wilderness when i think wilderness i grew up in mississippi i think like the delta right which has all this lush you know insects and and food the wilderness in israel it's desert that's where he is and satan is tempting him he's tempting him to use his divinity to minimize his suffering and he refuses to cheat he refuses to turn you know, rocks into bread. He refuses to use any resource that you or I do, uh, don't have because he obeys fully as a man. So I said, right, think about how hard it is for Harry Potter not to, not to use his magic. Then someone else reminded me, when you're talking to older people, it would be like bewitched. Think how hard it is for Samantha not to use her magic, right, to get out of situations, right? Same thing. Jesus refuses to, to use his divinity to decrease his suffering. And if you know, it's really interesting. There's two points in Jesus' life. He is so famished and empty because he's a real human, fasting for 40 days, that at the end of that temptation, it says, angels come down and strengthen Jesus. I don't know what that means. But Jesus was so weak that the angels that he created had to strengthen him. The angels must have been saying, what is going on? And then he's abandoned and betrayed by his friends. Judas kisses him on the cheek to to point out who to arrest. This heartbreaking betrayal. Peter, James, and John, he says, would you pray for me? I'm about to die and they fall asleep. And then he sweats drops of blood because he's fully God and fully human and because he's the holiest human to ever live. Holiness has to want the presence of God so he cannot want hell. He can't want it. That would be unholy but in the greatest act of obedience, as he sweats drop of blood, he submits himself to the cross. And what ha- again, what happens in the garden of Gethsemane? It says angels show up again to strengthen him. He's in such intense fear. The angels have to be astonished saying, how are we strengthening the Lord of glory? This makes no sense. And so he ends up being arrested for something he didn't do, mocked. He's held up as a great villain. They, they punch him, they say, hey, <laughs> who prophesied you. They, they make him a human pinata, and this is the Lord of glory. Think of the shame of having somebody hit you in the face while you're blindfolded. He was beaten so badly that his face was marred. He almost didn't look human, and so, which means the God of this universe knows what it's like to be stripped and laughed at, and he hangs there completely exposed on a cross. Unable to, co- unable to cover himself as people laugh and mock him he knows how it feels to be utterly shamed and th- and then jesus goes lower he gets beaten mocked spit upon and then is left ble- bleeding on a cross dying and you got to think surely this is the lowest he can go dying like a bloodied slave but he goes he goes lower because he tre- Jesus treasures the smile of the Father more than anything else. But here's how low he goes. He lets himself be wrapped in my sin, in your sin, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that Donald McLeod says this, God the Father, whose whole impulse it was to wash away the tears from the eyes of his people, will not wash away the tears of his own son as he suffers in our place. And he takes the fury of God's wrath for us. And the angels have to be saying, when will this end? How much lower does he have to go? And that's all I want you to see is that the pattern of Jesus is from the glory of heaven, the riches of heaven, from the throne of the universe to a feeding trough as in a stable, to a bed and then to a cross, to rejection by God, to hell itself, so that his life ends hanging on a cross, mutilated and cursed by God. Jesus is buried beneath so many layers of humiliation that his earthly life, here's what it says, the last place in the whole wide world where a man would look for God, there was nothing that looked less like God than that slave hanging on a cross, but that is absolutely who God is. That's how he is. And so it has to leave you saying, what would compel someone to do that, to go that low? And the answer the scriptures give is that he's crazy about his bride, you, the church. His love for you and his love of obedience to the Father are what keeps him going down, down, down. Because you and his eyes are worth it. He empties himself because the thought of having you and being with you forever is what makes his heart full. And that's just got to watch it. Like, yes, you. Yes, me. Like, I ate a Cracker Barrel last night, and he emptied himself for me? Like, me, who, like, uh, struggles, you know, whatever, fill in the blank with you, struggles to keep friends, or me, who's an addict, or me, who I don't want to get out of bed a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of mornings, yes, you, you make his heart full, that's how low that he went, and I just, we have to start there, because as we start talking about how does that affect my ordinary Monday, you just got to see how low Jesus goes, Because if you ever wonder if the God of this universe really loves you, and you say, well, I don't feel like he loves me today, there's a real sense that we got to get out of our feelings and look at the incarnation. He became a man for you. He emptied himself of everything for you. And again, that doesn't answer every question, but it does mean this. like, If God loved me in this way... I keep thinking, well, then therefore he would also do this for me. Therefore he'd take my mental illness away. Therefore he would, uh, you know, give, give me this that I really need. And I don't know, but you have to look at the incarnation and say, he, he went to that lengths to get you. So whatever you have or don't have in your life is coming through the hands of a crucified and risen Savior. It's not because he doesn't love you. And so the watertight case of does God really love me, it's not our feelings. It's not our circumstances. It's not even how our life is going. It's something objective outside of you. It's the person of Jesus in his incarnation. He went to the depths to save you. Here's the good news. That means you cannot be too low for Jesus. You cannot mess up your life too much for Jesus. You can't be too sinful, too little, too ordinary, too young, too old. The incarnation means Jesus has covered you with himself so you can become one flesh with him. There is no way you can get too low for Jesus. The only thing you can get is too big for Jesus. Because the the only thing you can say, the thing that will keep you from him is saying, I don't need the humiliation of God himself to save me. That's the only thing that will keep you from him. And you start realizing that's our pride. That's what I need. So that's our big kind of review of the incarnation. Um, any, any quick question on the incarnation before we do kind of, you know, 15, 20 minutes applying us. But was there any more thoughts about how God can be, how the son of God can be um, dwelling in truly God, truly man in, in one form and how low he empties himself for us? Anything come up? Dr. Greger. This is so mind the angels long to look into it. Yeah, Dr. Greger is saying it's mind blowing when you look at, I think it's 1 Peter or 2 Peter, where it talks about that the angels long to look into this, that the angels were observing what was going on because they didn't understand the mystery of the depths either. And they were fascinated by what God was doing to save his people. And that's where it's real convicting, because but usually by about 12.30 at a good Mexican lunch, I've forgotten about this. And I'm complaining about how the, you know, the chips aren't good. And the angels are like still fascinated at what God has done to get us. And, and so, yeah, thanks, Dr. Craig, for pointing, pointing that out. Well, he is quoting Psalm 22, so he's fulfilling that. But it's also, he is, right, so in uh, the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into hell. Personally, what I think is that doesn't mean that, you know, on that Saturday, he actually himself descended into the place of hell for a day. Because, right, he looks at the thief and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But what, ha- what that means is on the cross, hell took a location because because being hell is being forsaken by God it's the wrath of God it's 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 the removal of everything lovely good and Jesus takes that in our place and so cries out that he's crying out the cry of hell and actually still living by faith that's what's amazing uh he's still crying out to him uh amidst that so is that what you're kind of asking Mr. Debbie good anything else yes walker Yes. Okay. So Walker's asking if his natures operate independently of each other. So the confession talks about it, how they each, they each function according to their own attributes and they stay that way. So, um, yes. So, so they're still functioning together, but in one person. So, uh, I would be an example. So his divinity is absolutely still omniscient. It has to be His divinity is absolutely omnipresent. He's still upholding the world. So he is upholding Pontius Pilate as Pontius Pilate sentences him to death. And his humanity is still... So his humanity does not take on omniscience. It still functions as a real human mind. So they work together in one person, each according to their attribute. Is that kind of what you're asking? I mean, I see you doing this. Yeah, right. That's what... Totally. So... Yeah. It, it, it says what Pontius Pilate is doing to Jesus, but it doesn't say it doesn't sort of include that but we all know that he's actually a post- Yeah. Pontius Pilate. It Pilate. You know, it doesn't say that. That's a good that's a good point, Melvin. Mel saying, "Do you think the gospels are focusing on his humanity?" Uh, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it because like the gospel of John is showing you the eyewitness account of John, and John was watching watching his humanity. Yes, it's it's the god man. <laughs> but he's watching the humiliation of Christ and it's, it's zeroing in on that. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't stop to tell you like, Hey, don't forget Jesus is upholding Pontius Pilate. It's just showing you him, him being mocked and rejected. Now he does, he does give you some glimmers. Like when they come to arrest him, uh, somehow he unveil he says the name I am. He says Yahweh's name and all, I don't know if you, all the soldiers hit the deck. So in some ways, there's this sense where he, he just for a second unveils his divinity, and they all, in other words, he's showing them and all of us that I'm going to the cross bec- on my accord, not on yours. And so you see these glimmers, but yeah, it's really focused on his humanity. That's a good way to put it, Melvin. That's why you should be teaching this, Melvin. So, um, all right, so a couple things to apply this real quick in you know, 17 minutes first. I want you to think in terms of how the incarnation has to shape us. I think it does shape our doubts and questions about God. We always want Christ Press to be a safe place to struggle with questions and to have doubt because the opposite of faith is not doubt, the opposite of faith is idolatry. Doubt can be an expression of faith. But I'm telling you, what will help your questions is if you start with the incarnation. Right? Think in terms of like, we might say, it just seems narrow to say that Christianity and the Bible is the only religion that has it correct. And that does seem narrow, right? If I was born in the Middle East uh, in a Muslim nation, would I not be just as convinced about the Quran and Muhammad and Isla? And it might just seem, it might seem that as long as you're sincere, that you have internal life. And I sympathize with that. But if you start with the incarnation, Every other religion, every other system of belief is saying, is saying the way to God is through your sincerity or through something that you do or, or something about you. And the incarnation is saying we cannot make it back to God ourselves. That's impossible. God has to do the work in Jesus. That's what the incarnation means. There is no salvation outside of him, or else I say I don't need the humili- hum- humiliation of God. But also salvation is possible for anybody because Jesus did the work. So anybody can come in. So what I would say is it's actually narrow to say that people are saved as long as they're generally sincere and good because that excludes me because I'm not generally good and sincere. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, I, need, I need the humiliation of Christ. Or think about the problem of evil. I think this one is hard, right? Right? It seems that if God is powerful and good and there's evil, either he isn't all-powerful or he's not good because there's certainly evil and suffering in this world. And I would say instead of just sitting with that question in some kind of philosophy world, run it through the incarnation. All, All my questions might not be answered, but if I start with the God who entered into this evil and broken world himself and took upon himself evil and suffering, That reframes the question because he's healing it. So Dorothy Sayers says this. This is one of my favorite quotes. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us be limited, suffer, and be subject to sorrows and death, we now know that he nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can ask nothing of us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death, he was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and suffered infinite pain all for us, and he thought it well worth his while. Again, I'm not saying that answers every question about the problem of evil and suffering, but it's like John Stott says, that in a a real world of pain and suffering and evil, how can I worship a God who is immune to it? he's not. He made himself vulnerable to it so as to heal it. And so we start there and then our work our way to the questions. Um, And you could go on and on, you know, how can I take the Bible seriously in today's world of science? I'm not a scientist. I was a marketing major at Ole Miss with a three point average. So whatever that means to you, okay? I do know this though, that if God became a man in Christ Jesus with death and resurrected and I start with there, there, then I don't know. That's the grand miracle that I can hold intention. that there's other things about the beginning of the universe that I can't explain, and that's okay. <laughs> if he did that, then he can probably create the world in ways that I can't explain. So I'm just saying start with the incarnation. Second of all, the incarnation shapes your view of the world. Uh, Keller talks about this. He says, do you, do you foundationally think of the world as being good or bad? Do you think the spiritual or the material is more important? Because again, every other religious system of thinking pits the spiritual against the material. Eastern religions say it's all about the nirvana, all about spiritual salvation is away from the material world. This material world's bad. Western religions, whether that's atheism or secular, secularism, says this world is the only thing that's real. The only, only, th- only things that can go under the scientific, you know, uh, test is real. You know what the incarnation tells us? The spiritual and physical are both important. The material is fundamentally good because God made it. It's broken, it's not the way it should be, but God took on human flesh. And so God the Son took on a human body and soul, the physical and the spiritual, and he's redeemed and redeeming both. And so the incarnation actually keeps those together. And usually we lean in one direction or the other. Like, How many times have you thought or heard Christians say, I just need to be more spiritual. Why all the parties, why all the small talk, why do people care how they look? Sometimes even, you know, why are, sometimes people say, why are we rehabbing houses or feeding the hungry? If we don't get a chance to evangelize, what's the point? The whole world is burning up. So all that matters is Bible study, Bible reading, prayer, that's all that matter. And start realizing that religious people are uncomfortable with the physical and the material. But in Jesus Christ, with the incarnation, you realize Jesus cares about our bodies. He has to. He took on one, and he'll redeem it, which means tutoring kids or building building their mind is godly. Feeding the hungry and cleaning up a neighborhood so it's safer and more beautiful is godly because God entered the world that he made so as to redeem it. And that means, I mean, please hear me. You're going to hear me come back and talk about how important evangelism is. But that means sometimes a physical hug from a friend is more healing than quoting a Bible verse. It just is because he took on a human body. And sometimes that means exercise and healthy eating can help a lot of problems, right? That's because he made us that way, and he became a, he became a man. But also, there are other side, irreligious people say that the spiritual doesn't matter, that the physical is everything. So if, if, if I have sexual feelings that are this way, then I just need to have sex. That's all that matters. Depression, it's simply chemicals in the brain. I'm not saying it's less than that, okay? But therefore, the only solution to depression is medicine and eating. That is part of the problem. But it's much more complex than that. We believe there's a spiritual component of that too. And so, and so irreligious people send it, say that all that matters is being successful, comfortable, the pleasures of this life are supreme, and the spiritual is good until it interferes with those. But Jesus is the God-man. He came to reconcile us to God. And so the spiritual, the unseen, is just as important, or maybe you could even say more important, I don't know, than the material, because we want to see people reconciled to God. And so we believe in prayer because prayer channels the power of God. Loving someone does mean evangelism, and Jesus was fully human, here we go, and he never expressed his sexuality in an immoral way. And he was fully human and fully satisfied. Which means if you're celibate the rest of your life because you choose it or you never marry, you're not missing out on anything. Jesus lived a full life. You're sacrificially following the Lord. So the incarnation means you can actually love this world, the physical good world that God made, You don't have to feel guilty about enjoying good times with friends or a good cup of coffee. And also the world is broken and crying out for redemption so we enter into that pain. So Christians are supposed to care about physical mercy, concerns for the poor, material needs, and the saving of someone's soul, both. And you gotta kinda look at your life and say, well, which way do I lean? And how does the incarnation need to correct me? Does that make sense? Okay, third. The, we're covering a lot of ground, I'm sorry. The incarnation means healing for you. There's a great quote from St. Gregory. This is like, you know, any, anything I can pull that's, you know, over a thousand years old, I'll pull it so it makes me sound smart. He says this, what has not been assumed has not been healed. Here's what he was trying to say. Look, everything has been broken by sin. Our mind, our emotions, our will, our body, soul. And so the only way things can be healed is if Jesus takes it upon himself. So Jesus, right, takes on a body, mind, emotions, personality, so He'll heal it. Again, we talked about this the first week, but Jesus had the whole range of, of human emotions, which means salvation in Jesus doesn't make us less emotional; it actually makes us more emotional. He redeems our emotions because we're becoming like the Holy One, Jesus. And if you're like me, I'm an Enneagram Seven. I don't care. You know, if, if you think the Enneagram's crazy, that's okay. You can think I'm crazy, but, I just want to have fun. And so, sitting in dark and lonely places in sadness, it feels out of control. I hate it. I just want to leave. But Jesus did that. Jesus absorbed and took the sorrow of this world, and it really made him sad. And his emotions were so pure and so loving that anything wrong brought about compassion. Which means, what, ha, however sad that you are this morning about something going on in your life, your friend's life, to the degree that that sadness is loving, I'm telling you, Jesus is sadder about it than you are. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your sorrow is shared with Jesus? That Jesus is, is more sorry about your parents' divorce than you are? That your tears mix with Jesus' tears, and as you look at his sorrow, he will heal it. It's the same for joy. Our joy always increases when we share it with others. You know this is true. Like, you know, baseball season started. When Ole Miss won a national championship, you wanted to watch it with other people because joy increases sharing it with others. Your joy is shared with Jesus, and it increases it. Jesus takes joy in you. Uh, so, all, you know this, All emo- John Cox talked about this, that all emotions in a real sense are healed and redeemed as they're shared. You know this, if you, if you have pain or fear and you share that with somebody else and they validate that, it's like, okay, that's all I needed. All, you, all your emotions are validated by Jesus, and Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Uh, Jesus is our priest, made us in every way. Uh, there, will be no, there will never be something that you go through that he doesn't connect with. So there's an there's a old uh, playlet called The Long Silence. You can actually look it up on YouTube. It's like a five-minute play. And what it does is it imagines all these people on the final day when God returns, Judgment Day, and there's this very disgruntled people, people group. And they're the people who have suffered the most in the world. And they, they want to put God on trial. And so they start, they start sending their representative and they say, okay, if God is going to judge us, how can he judge us if he doesn't know what suffering's like? And so first the person that shows up is a young brunette who rips off a sleeve to display a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. The next person is an African American boy who lowers his collar and says, What about this? and shows the rope burn of being lynched. And there's a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes who says, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. And all these groups of people who have suffered are are saying if God is going to judge us, for him to be qualified to judge us, then he needs to endure what what we've all endured. And so the decision was this. If God's going to judge us, he needs to be sentenced to live on earth as we have lived. And so here, here, here comes the answer. Okay, so that means there needs to be a person born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think of him out of his mind as he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured and at last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so there can be no doubt that he had died and let there be the great, a great host of witness to verify it. And all of a sudden it gets silent because they realize God has already put himself on trial. He came in the person of Jesus and lived all that out. I'm, like, he knows what it's like to be you. He has suffered the greatest so it, it says this. Uh, he can look down on us in all our struggles, turn to his father and say, I know exactly how that woman feels. He's not only shepherd but lamb and what he saw, felt, and suffered here is etched indelibly upon his memory, sustaining a sympathy we can never outreach. That's just true today. Um, so, I, let's see. I've got to hurry here. Um, lastly, uh, it, it changes your uh, view of what changes the world. How did God change the world? He changed the world by making himself low, by being a servant. The incarnation means Jesus got involved. There's this famous New York crime that's famous for all the wrong reasons that this woman was getting assaulted and screamed out and all these people in the apartments heard it and nobody came down and intervened. And the robber actually came back and killed her. And when they're interviewing all these people afterwards, they they say, "Why why didn't anybody help? And they all thought somebody else would. Or they just said, we didn't want to get involved. Whereas the incarnation means that God has heard the cry of pain in this world and he chose to get involved. And he changes us and changes you and saves the world by getting close to us. Right? I, I, again, I always like to think of ministry as like throwing words like grace or forgiveness or compassion. Like I'll stand over here and throw those words to you. That's not how God did it grace compassion and love became a person and he came close and he came near us so so close that he let our sin cover him and his righteousness cover us which means the way that people are going to be changed is by you being incarnational in the life of other people and it's messy it's it's learning what what it's like to be in another person's shoes because Jesus knows what it's like to be in your shoes Talk to anybody that's gone into Kairos and the prison ministries. They'll tell you that the step you have to do is you have to realize this person is like me. (laughs) Um, I've got to learn what it's like to be this person. This person is a sinner in need of Jesus Jesus like me and I've got to learn this person's story. And I used to challenge students all the time that that person, and I do this too, that person that you're writing off in your sorority is crazy or whatever. It might be that when you actually get to know that person, that she grew up in a house being told that she had to be perfect all the time. And now you might actually start sympathizing. Now you might understand what it's like to be her a little bit. That's what love looks like. That's how he changed the world. Which means the way that we change the world, this is what's so hard, it's the humiliation of Jesus. And I want to change the world by holding on to power, by making other people serve me. And Jesus changed the world by giving up power, by making himself low. Uh, and serving others. And it's, it's just the way that the world's gonna be changed because now you and I are the body of Christ. That's what, that's what it said. So, Joe Novenson used to say this, and I'll, I'll start wrapping up. Joe Novenson, one of my favorite pastors, he said this. I choose my words carefully, Christian. You are the more, most powerful people on the planet because you have the Holy Spirit in you. You're united to Jesus. And then he said, how, and then he said, how dare us use our power to put others down to prop ourselves up? How dare us use our humor and speech to put others down so I can rise? How dare us use our talents and gifts to disadvantage others so that I can be powerful and comfortable? It's the opposite of what Jesus is like. We actually as Christians should look like we're losing to the world because it's me for you. And that's just hard. And so I'll wrap it up with this. Um, i will go through that. Um, The incarnation ultimately, ultimately means uh, that God loves you and he wants to be with you. I'm going to end where I started. Um, The incarnation just screams God wants to be with you. He wants to be near you. And in my worst days, I don't even want to be near myself. But God does. When you think about the first marriage in Genesis 2, before death or anything else, do you remember how Eve is created? Adam is wounded in his side as he goes into a sleep and they build a woman, his wife, from his rib. And they become one husband, one wife, one flesh, so close, so united that God says those two persons are one. And that's what's true of your marriage. And do you know what Ephesians 5 tells us? Ephesians 5 tells us that, says a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2. It says that mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. Which means Adam and Eve's one fleshness is a pointer to something better. That only the best earthly marriage can can dimly reflect. Because the second Adam, we talked about that last week, Jesus, he will be wounded. But instead of entering a deep sleep for a rib to be taken and create Eve, he will enter the ultimate sleep of death. And out of his life and death, a bride will form you, the church. and, And you become one flesh with her by faith which means he becomes like us so that we can be united to him and become like him. He sacrifices himself for his bride. Your burdens, your sins become his and his joy and his faithfulness become yours. He so united himself to you that you're wrapped up in him. That's how near he wants to be to you. So I'll end with this. Dorothy Sayers, I've already quoted. She's a mid-20th century author. She's amazing. She was one of the first female graduates of Oxford. She's most famous for her mystery detective novels, where she, it involves an aristocrat named Peter Whimsey, if you've ever read them. Well, towards the end of her story, she writes a character into her, her stories named Harriet Vane. Here's what's true about Harriet Vane. She's the first female graduate of Oxford. She's a writer of mystery detectives. And what all Dorothy Sayers scholars, you know what they, they think? That as she was writing the stories about Peter Whimsey, Dorothy Sayers herself fell in love with Peter Whimsey. And so she wrote herself into the story to fall in love with him. You do realize that's what the incarnation means. That Jesus fell in love with us. And so he wrote himself into our story so that he can be with us. And you can be with him. Adam and Eve looked at the God in the garden and said, I want to be God. And the son of God looks at us and says, I want to be human so I can be with them forever. That's the God of this universe. That's what the incarnation shows you. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, it's... It's just, it's astounding. It really is. Um, That you want to be so near us that you become like us and you don't even quit there. You're going to make us like yourself. So would you uh, bring about hope this morning if that's true? Uh, Those of us who are sad, would we see that our sadness is shared with you? Those of us who are joyful, let us see our joy is shared with you. Lord, just bring us near to Jesus, the God-man, the king of this world and the one who is like us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.